Proverbs 24, or 27, excuse me, verse 15 uh, says, A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the book of Proverbs, you know this is not the first nor the second, nor actually the third or the fourth, but the fifth time now that God comes back to this same subject once again, addressing this routine principle of relationships, of really just the dynamic in relationship, we might say, of being someone who is very difficult to get along with. And God has repeatedly come back to this same subject of this, what seems to be described very clearly of this contentious woman, no doubt likely referring to the contentious relationship in marriage. At times it's specifically stated that way. And here he describes it once again, coming back to the subject in a picturesque way, like on an occasion when it's raining outside and so outside it's raining, nobody wants to go out in the rain, so you seek shelter inside, but then you go inside to get away from the rain, and on the inside it's like, he says, a continual dripping. So the idea there is it's a rainy day outside, and on the inside there's a constant leak and a constant drip, and so the picture is it's miserable outside, it's miserable conditions inside, and it's inescapable to get away from the misery. If you go outside, you're in the rain. You come inside, you're under a leaky, miserable roof. The analogy there, he says, this is much what it's like being stuck in the misery of having a contentious wife who's always causing strife, always battling, always being contentious in one's attitude or spirit. And he says, even as we can't restrain certain natural things. I mean, we, we can't cease the rain from happening outside when it's leaky on a rainy day. That's not the occasion where you can resolve a leak or you can fix the problem. You kind of just have to deal with it. There's nothing really possible that can be done if it's raining outside and leaking on the inside. He says in the same way, this is sort of an analogy that it's not always possible to restrain a contentious attitude, he says, in a wife or in a woman. Uh, or in a relationship in any capacity. Certainly, I don't say it's beyond a man to be contentious as well. Uh, God continues to refer to, in the sense of the feminine, of the contentious woman, to caution, apparently something that God observes and God sees, uh, and God realizes is a common occurrence, and it's why, no doubt, he keeps addressing it for the health and welfare of marriage relationships. And I think it just becomes a good reminder as he comes back to this principle again for the fifth time, uh, not only is this something to be on guard against, but it in some ways becomes a reminder that in the same way you can't stop the rain or you can't resolve the leaky roof on a rainy day, there's not a whole lot you can do, it's outside of your power, that we do not have the capacity to change people. Uh, and we can make human efforts and we can try and change someone and resolve and well, I don't like their contentious attitude or I don't like this about them or that about them. But the reality is, in the same way, he says, it's like trying to restrain the wind. I don't know who's done that recently. Or he says, in the same way, verse 16, it's like grasping oil with the right hand. The idea is it's, just, it's, it's a slippery substance. You're not going to be able to get a grip on the situation to restrain it. 
we're not always able to restrain someone's attitude or to change someone's heart condition. We have to ask for God's intervention. Uh, only God, as far as I know, can restrain the wind. Uh, but he is actually able to do that. He's able to do things that we're not. And so God can restrain a wrong attitude in a person. God can resolve an unhealthy heart condition in a person. And so we would be wise to realize, God, I can't resolve this. I can't change that person. I'm asking you to. Please, Lord, would you intervene, change the heart attitude, change the situation for the healing and the benefit of the relationship? That's always the best reproach, particularly when we're realizing it's somewhat impossible for us to change things. Verse 17, he does then speak of a way that we can help one another, that we can benefit one another in relationship. Very popular proverb. Probably many of us know this one a little more commonly. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So here he speaks about the benefit of relationships, particularly close relationships, friendships, where there's you know, a sense of camaraderie and partnership, where you're spending time together, you know, you're committed to one another, uh, you're interacting, doing life together, helping one another out. And here he speaks of how in good friendships and close human relationships, we can actually serve to be instruments in each other's lives to help each other's lives be better, to help one another's lives become more effective, if you would. He says, in the same way that an iron can sharpen iron, again, the idea is that if the iron implement has become dull and it's not effective and it needs to be sharpened because it's lost its effectiveness, it's lost its usefulness. So to take some iron, you can sharpen iron and you can cause that you know, to once again regain its proper usefulness or to be improved or more beneficial. Uh, but again, I would also say typically, last time I checked, when you rub iron against iron, you also usually get a little heat and sparks and friction in the process so sometimes that is a part of growth and development and actually helping one another at times in relationships. You know, the, there should be, if I could take this back to the prior verse, to marriage, in the same way we might feel like, oh man, I, I feel like that we have conflicts and disagreements and sometimes I feel like there's just sparks flying between us and conversations in our marriage relationship. Well, uh, there is no better friend you probably have been assigned than your spouse, uh, and God has given that person to you to be a companion, to be a comrade, to be a life partner. And, and I hope you would also deem them your best friend. Something's very wrong if not. And so at times in the midst of that friendship, God may be using you like iron to sharpen one another and to, to kind of help each other to grow and to progress and to really become more effective, to become better individuals. But there also may be some sparks that fly once in a while and some friction and some heated moments, but that's not always a bad thing. He says here, as iron sharpens iron, so a man can sharpen the countenance, the character of his friend. And what a wonderful thing that, that we can have relationships and good, healthy human relationships to agree uh, where we're able to actually, you know, not just be surfacey, but actually have close enough camaraderie and connection where we're actually able to kind of do that, to, to sharpen one another, to, to rub the rough edges off of one another. I mean, I look at the, you know, 28 plus years, my wife and I just passed our 28 year anniversary recently, and, and, and not only the time period we were together before we got married, but the 28 years we've been married, and, and just the wonderful benefit that it has brought, uh, how it's changed us both 
so much. You know, often when I'm doing you know, premarital counseling with couples, a lot of times I'll tell them, look, when, when we first met, the only thing we had in common was Jesus. I was on the North Pole. She was on the South Pole. We were absolute, complete opposites. And honestly, that hasn't changed much. We got one more thing in common when we started having children. So now we share Jesus and children. And we live under the same roof. So I guess that's a third thing. But what we found is that the longer we did life together, that I was on the North Pole, she was on the South Pole, and we've kind of brought each other both a little bit closer to the equator. And, and, and so we've kind of helped each other to, to grow and to balance and rub some of the rough, rough edges off of one another and some of the extremes, because that's always what's not good, right? Life in balance in all areas is usually the best. And we all have our greatest strength, which is usually then always our biggest weakness at the same time. And so you kind of help do that. You, you, you take away extremes from one another, you sharpen one another, and, and you help kind of help each other to be better individuals. And there's nothing more wonderful whether that's in a marriage relationship, whether it's in friendships with brothers in the Lord or sisters in Christ. And I think people do themselves an incredible disservice as they isolate themselves from people. And as they think, oh, I want to be a Christian, but I don't need the church. Can I tell you what that is? Stupidity. First of all, it's unbiblical. Second of all, you are robbing yourself of Christian maturity. The only way you grow up is living and, and mature is living among a family of people. And many times staying with those same people and, and, and doing life together and realizing, hey, this is how we sharpen and benefit one another by doing life together. And when people neglect being with other Christians and isolate themselves and want to sit at home and, and disconnect from the body of Christ, they are robbing themselves of God's intended purpose to help them to grow and to mature, and they're robbing other people from helping other people as well. It's both a give and a take experience, right, in relationships. We're being sharpened by others. We're sharpening others by our interactions with them, and what a wonderful thing. The wise person realizes building relationships and friendships and accountability into your life, that's a part of growth and maturity. It's the way that God helps us grow and mature. It's the way that we are used to help others and so again, just such a wonderful principle, wise people recognize as iron sharpens iron, he says, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So thankful for the men in my life that God has used to sharpen me, to help me over the years. Verse 18, whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. So this, of course, speaks of how we should take care of things that are entrusted to us, attending to them properly with appropriate responsibility. And he says, not only being a good steward with our responsibilities, the keeper of the fig tree will not only eat its fruit, that is benefit from one's labors, from one's diligent productive work, that that's how you reap what you need by taking care of your responsibilities, tending that field or that fig tree that's been entrusted to you. And he says, in the same way, the one who waits on his master will be honored. So seeking to do our work in a way to please our master who's entrusted us with that fig tree to take care of or that sphere of responsibility, that vocational field or that field that God gives to us to serve in, whatever it may be, and recognizing, okay, this is what I've been entrusted with. This is my responsibility. This is the thing I'm to tend and to take care of. And he says, the one who diligently does that 
will partake of the fruit. Good fruit will come from that in time, and we reap the reward and the, the necessary benefit that we need from it. And as we do such waiting on our master, doing it to please our master and to honor him, he says the, the master will honor us. Again, whether it's our human master or ultimately whether it's Jesus, our uh, spiritual master, he will honor us if we simply do our part to be diligent, re you know, responsible, productive individuals with what's entrusted to us. Verse 19, as water or excuse me, as in water, face reflects face. The idea is seeing your reflection in the water. You see the reflection of your face. So a man's heart reveals the man. So the picture here is how water simply serves to re reveal the reflection of what our face looks like as we glance down into the water. He says, in the same way, the condition of a man's heart will ultimately be revealed by his outward actions, through his words, those things become a revelation of the condition of our heart. And we see that principle throughout the word of God. You know, Jesus said, by their fruits, outward expression, you'll know them. He said, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And he says, by their fruits, you will know them. So it is appropriate to measure the fruit in someone's life. God tells us to be fruit inspectors. We're not called to be judges. I can't judge someone's heart. I don't know their heart, but the Bible says, Jesus says, I can see their heart by simply evaluating the fruit of their life. John, even when he talked about repentance, he, as he called forth under the inspiration of the Spirit, he said, bear forth fruits worthy of representing repentance. In other words, rep repentance, which means change, turning away from wrong and turning around and doing what's right, he, he said that's something that's a measurable thing outwardly. It's not something, repentance isn't something that we talk about, it's something we do. It's something we display. And so our heart is always going to ultimately be displayed by the re revelation of the fruit, and we're going to be able to see just like the water reflects the face and it clearly gives a representation of, of what one truly does look like, he says in the same way, the outward fruit is going to be revealed. Again, Jesus also said not just in our outward actions is our heart revealed, but even, remember, he said in our words. Jesus also said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, again, we can tell a lot about the condition, the true condition of someone's heart. And for that matter, even the condition of our own heart, if we are willing to listen to ourselves at times, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, at times, if I'm willing to be you know, open and listen to my own speech at times and pay attention to how I'm talking and what I'm talking about, sometimes I can get a little clearer pulse on where my heart really is at uh, because sometimes we don't quite recognize, but you know, we may think our heart's in this condition or well, I'm not embittered or I'm not poisoned or, you know, and, and we don't want to recognize sometimes or I'm not proud or, or, you know, or I'm not critical. And, but then all of a sudden you kind of listen to your heart and you realize, I actually think I kind of am <laughs> because when I listen to the way that I'm talking or things that I'm and all of a sudden you learn things about yourself and it becomes a reflection to see or same thing with others. One of the greatest ways I have found according to God's word to learn is not just to watch people, but to listen to people. 
and just to listen to what people are saying, listen, and boy, it gives a real good reflection many times, just where their heart's at, what they're going through, and I'll tell you, it not only helps just to know where somebody's at and how to relate to them or, you know, where they're coming from, what their character's like, but a lot of times it also becomes one of the greatest assets to truly understand maybe how to help somebody too. A lot of times that's the mistake we, we make. Remember we saw that proverb, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. And one of the greatest things we can learn to do is be quick to listen, slow to speak. And the reason being is that by letting someone talk, you get a little window into where they're at. And you kind of really do understand because that begins to be the reflection of their heart. And then you can kind of relate to them according to you know, what's going on by getting them talking and letting that be reflected a little bit. Verse 20, he says, hell and destruction, he speaks here of the place of, of the dead, the place of the abode, the, the place of eternal damnation as well. He says, are never full. And boy, that's a, a sobering reality, never full. The idea is they're always looking for more residents. We should be trying to spare people from becoming tenants there. He says, never, never full, never satisfied. So in like manner, here's the picture, the eyes of man are never satisfied. So uh, the picture there in verse 20 is the eyes causing a lack of contentment because of covetousness for always wanting more, always seeing what I still don't have, or always seeing something new that you want, and how, again, the Bible speaks about the lust of the flesh, and also he speaks of the lust of the eyes. That is, that there is this appetite, this craving that is kind of stimulated by our covetousness in our spirit or a lack of contentment within us that we're never satisfied. We're always seeing something still, the, the next thing that we want to buy, whether it's the next thing that we want to get or it's the next thing we want to attain or whether it's the thing that I don't have but they do or, and how our eyes can really kind of have this appetite that can become very covetous. And he says, Interesting how the eyes of man are never satisfied. We always find something else, the next thing we have to have. And look, let me just say in connection to even just the area of struggle in any way with lust or sexual perversion, whether that be a lady or a man, because such things are not just a male problem. We would like to keep thinking that in our culture, but I can tell you if I've watched the trend of society over the years in pastoral ministry and counseled with people and watched as our cultures become more perverse, things like pornography and lust and perversion, this is just not a guy problem. And I hope that's not knowledge to some of you. And, and he says, look, if that becomes a struggle or that's something that you're wrestling with, realize putting a log on the fire doesn't solve the problem. And that's the biggest deception. Because look what the Bible says, wise people understand the eyes of a man, of a human, of a person, are never satisfied. No matter what you look at, you're going to want to look at more. You're going to want to look at something else. You're going to crave the next thing. So it's not a matter of, oh, if I just indulge myself, the drive will go away, the desire will go away. No, it won't. All you will do is just inflame the desire. It's going to, it's going to counteract the opposite way. Your eyes will never be satisfied. It's an insatiable appetite, whether it's pornography or whether it's the next material thing or whatever it may be. And so again, we have to realize, hey, I've got to regulate my appetite. I've got to regulate my eyes. I need to realize 
that no matter what I set my eyes on, I'll never be satisfied. I have to use self-control and discipline over one's desires and even the lust of the eyes. Verse 21, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. So here the writer speaks of a good test of a person's value is to consider, he says, what those who know of them are actually saying about them. In the same way that the refining pot is used for silver and the furnace for gold to do what? To, to get the impurities out and to test the quality and to improve the qualities and the value of the metals, of the precious metals. He says in the same way, one of the best ways to test the quality of a person's life most accurately revealed is not going to be in what they say of themselves. It's not going to be in what they think of themselves. It's not going to be in what their resume says. It's actually going to be those people who truly know them, what do they say about them? That's the best way to test someone's value. A person is best valued by not their own self-assessment. And this is important too. It's not who we are or our influence or our impact. That is never best assessed going to be by ourselves because we can err in one of two ways, either in our own self-estimation, we can be way too negative, right? And we can become our own worst critic and we can think, oh, my influence and my impact and who I am. And, and we can be way too harsh and negative and our self-estimation can be very unreliable because we may put a very low value upon ourselves and a very low value on our own self-estimation that's completely wrong and very self-deprecating and discouraging and, and very kind of something that's going to just drive us into a place of despair. On the other side of that, it could also be wrong on the other end of the spectrum. It could be way too positive. <laughs> and we, we have way too high of a view of ourselves. And we think we're really something. And boy, we're having influence. And man, I really hit a home run there. And, you know, and, and we can have way too high of a self-estimation. And we hold much too high of a value of our own self-importance. And that's wrong as well. So God says the best way to really know the quality, the true quality of a person's life is a man is really valued. What are others saying about them? If you were to ask someone else who knows that person, hey, what do you think about that guy? What do you think about that guy? He says that's a good use, best way to get a good assessment of their true value, of who they really are as a person. That's the best test, God would say. Verse 22, though you grind a fool in mortar, with a pestle, along with crushed grains, there's the picturing of you know using the, the stone tools to crush the hard grain. You got to really grind it hard between the stones, crushing it up. He says, that's the picture. Yet his foolishness, just like the fool, will not depart still from him. So the picture there is no matter what sometimes, no matter what a stubborn fool is subjected to, no matter what crushing experience or what comes upon them, they seem to just not be interested in changing still, no matter what it takes. I mean, they may go through the most crushing, difficult experiences. I mean, going through the grinder and just literally thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, you, you, just the grinder you just went through. But he says, some people are just, if I could use this analogy, they're just hardcore fools. And no matter what kind of a grinding, crushing hardship they go through, despite them being crushed, they just keep 
being foolish. Certainly a sad thing. Certainly not what God's desire is, but sometimes we realize that this is just the case with some people that their foolishness will just not depart from them. Kind of reminds us of one of the Proverbs. Remember, we saw just recently, he talked about as the dog returns to its own vomit, so the fool repeats his folly. Just again, again and again and again, a very unfortunate thing. Well, verse 23 down through verse 27, sort of a section here in the remainder of chapter 27, we're going to see these verses here really just kind of speak of the uh, importance of, we might say, staying aware of the condition of things and being properly attentive to those things, being aware of the condition and remaining attentive to addressing things as well. Verse 23 says, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and to attend to your herds. Notice, know the state of things and attend to things. Make sure that you're aware of the condition of things. Your flocks, that which under your care, those things that you're responsible for, what's under your stewardship, make sure, he says, don't be negligent. Don't be not paying attention. Don't be distracted. You make sure you're diligent. That involves a conscious effort, staying on top of it, being intentional. Make sure you're diligent to know the state of your flocks. Know the state of things, the condition of things. Pay attention. And don't just pay attention, give attention. He says, and attend to your herds. That is address what needs to be addressed. Take care of what things that you see according to the condition that you become aware of. Don't neglect things that you're responsible for. It's one thing to see things falling apart. It's another thing to address things that are falling apart. It's one thing to see, hey, the condition of that needs to be addressed or helped or changed or I need to do this or handle that. It's a whole other thing to actually attend to it and to engage and to get involved and to do something. So this is the idea here. And, and the reason he gives, look what verse 24, he says, for riches are not forever. That is, the excess money doesn't last forever. It's a good reminder. Riches are not forever, he says. Nor does the crown endure to all generations. What's a crown? It's not only a picture of power, it's a picture of opportunity. And he says, the opportunity may not last forever. The money may go, the opportunity may disappear, and then when the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself, the herbs of the green mountains are gathered in, and the lambs, if you've attended to them, taking care of your flock, they will provide your clothing, and the goats, the price of a field. So again, because you took care of your flocks and herds, you were a good steward. They're now providing clothing and warmth and some money. You can sell off the goats for the price of a field to acquire something that you need to help to keep sustaining yourself, to plant for the next harvest, to provide for your needs and necessities, he says. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household. Again, notice that's our responsibility, making sure we're doing what it takes to provide the food for our household and the nourishment of your maidservants. So the picture there, again, why it's important to be aware of the state of our flocks and the conditions of things under our care and to attend to those things, he says, because verse 24, those things that you have now that may kind of, if I could say, diminish your uh, incentive to pay attention to things. Because sometimes when you have the excess riches or you've got the crown, you got the opportunity in front of you, you can almost kind of just be a little less motivated 
to pay attention to things and to take care of things and to be diligent and to be working with what you have in your stewardship, realizing that, hey, if I don't keep being productive and working with what I have, then eventually the money's going to disappear, the opportunity's going to go away, and then the next season's going to come and I'm going to go, oh no, I'm in the same spot and I didn't address things and now I have no money and no opportunity, what am I going to do? So he says, by paying attention to the condition of things and continually attending to things and being on top of things, it not only takes care of now, but he says it's also what prepares things for the future. It makes sure that there will be food and the money and the flocks and so forth, providing the milk that's needed and the, the price for a field and the finances for the future. So again, the idea here is excess finances and opportunity, they don't always remain forever. They can be lost. So we don't want to waste and disregard. We got to be good stewards under our spheres of responsibility so that we currently do things wisely now that ensures the benefit of what's coming in the future. So it's a caution against really the the error of negligence, the error of negligence, which is just the failure to kind of not take proper care of things, to not take proper care of doing what we should due to maybe distraction or just laziness or kind of just being disconnected and not thinking forward enough and kind of getting a little too lax and get God cautions us instead to be intentional, to stay aware of how things are going and keep attending to what you should because God's saying, don't forget, the future depends on that. What you do now is what determines what the future is going to hold a little bit down the road, both good or bad. And look, I think those verses are a great description in many ways, whether being diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, whether that's applicable to your family life. You know, be diligent. Know the state of your household. Don't, you know, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a mother, you know, be diligent, know the state. How, what's the state of the family? How's the marriage doing? How are the children doing? Pay attention. Don't let yourself get lazy and let things, pay attention. How, and, and as you need to, attend to your herds, attend to your children, attend to your marriage, make deposits, you know, do what you can. If the marriage is struggling, begin to address those things, attend to those things. Don't wait until then down the road things start to fall apart more and more, stay on top of things. So whether it's our family life, the condition of our family, whether it's our job opportunities and responsibilities, whether it's our finances that we're managing, whether it's a ministry, maybe it's some area of ministry. Again, I look at that and it's a reminder to me, be diligent to know the state of your flock. That's part of my responsibility as a shepherd to know the condition of the flock. How's the flock doing at Calvary Chapel Gateway? And to attend to those who need to be attended to and to pay attention and to realize that that's, that's an important part of the process. So things stay healthy. And again, I think it's a very good reminder to be careful of the foolishness of negligence and instead to be intentional wisely about staying on top of things in our lives. Chapter 28, verse 1, he says, the wicked flee... When no one pursues, the idea is just out of anxiety, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So here the picture in verse 1 is the, the one with a guilty conscience, me might say. The wicked person who's got a guilty conscience because they know that they've done wickedly and they're just hiding it and it hasn't come out yet, or they're in the midst of living sinfully, and he says that person with a guilty conscience they're always looking over their shoulder, right? 
And the reason is because with a guilty conscience, you're always worried of when you're eventually going to get caught. And so it's kind of a very miserable thing. When, whether you've done wrong and you've never dealt with it yet, or whether you're doing wrong and you haven't turned from it yet, you're always worried and you're kind of restless and anxious. He says they flee when nobody's even pursuing them. The idea there is just that there's that constant sense of, of, of paranoia because you're just worrying about getting exposed and you're just waiting for the judgment to drop. And so you tend to be insecure and kind of suspicious or overly defensive because you're always kind of on guard and, and terrified because you're trying to hide and keep up and cover something wrong. Uh, and it just has a, a tremendous effect upon you. Now, he says, in contrast to that, the benefit of the one who just lives righteous he says, they can be bold as a lion. It's the exact opposite there. The one who just lives right and is living right before the Lord can be very bold and courageous because why? They have nothing to hide. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? I mean, to just to, to not have to live constantly insecure and looking over your shoulder, but to just kind of have a strong inward spirit and to enjoy inner strength. And I'll tell you, when someone's living righteously, that's one of the things that's manifested from their life. There's sort of just an inward strength because they're not concerned about others. All they really care about is just wanting to do what's right. They just want to live righteously and please God, and so they can take a bold stand for righteousness. And instead of fleeing from people, they don't even fear people. They just fear God because that's the main concern. They just want to do what's right, and it kind of causes them to have this strength of fortitude in their character that is exhibited, and there's just kind of that boldness like a lion that comes forth that kind of emanates from their temperament. Verse 2, because of the transgression of the land... There are many princes, the idea is constant rulers, continual turnover, we might say, constant princes, many rulers, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. So verse two seems to describe how when a society of people are unhealthy, they're living wrongly, there's a lot of transgression and wrong things going on, one of the things it will produce is many different people, many princes, many people trying to rule and to regulate all the wrongdoing and unhealthy activity that's going on. And so you have all these different people having to get involved because everybody's just trying to rein in the messy chaos. And so everybody's kind of having to, and it's taking tons of people because things have gotten so unhealthy and out of control. To me, <laughs> I mean, forgive me if it sounds facetious, but I kind of look at verse two and it reminds me of big government. All of a sudden, you, know, <laughs> you, just, you need all these people involved because just the land's a mess. And so it's almost as if it precipitates those kind of things, you know, and, and there's lots of leadership turnover, many princes, uh, and there's constant continuous turnover of leaders uh, and many trying to be in charge and get things under control. And, and God says, there's a real indication things are really unhealthy there. Now, in contrast to that, look what he says. He says, yet in contrast, if you can just find one healthy man of understanding and knowledge, the idea who's just a good, healthy, wise leader, he says, right can be prolonged for many days. And there's the contrast again. It's not many leaders, it's a healthy leader. That's what God's looking for. Just healthy, wise, with understanding and knowledge, doing things. And he says that can keep things going in the right direction for a long period of time. It's the kind of leadership not the multitude of leaders that ultimately is necessary. 
Verse 3, a poor man who oppresses the poor. Now, that's kind of sad. You'd never think the poor, if they ever got to a place of power, would oppress the poor, right? But, but such is human nature, unfortunately. It's often been said before, the real test of a man's strength is not when you give him adversity, but when you grant him power. And there's, what a fitting example, somebody who's poor, you're thinking, okay, if there's anybody that person's going to have pity for, it's going to be the poor. I mean, they would never abuse the poor. They know what it's like to be poor. They would never do that. But here he says, a poor man, because they got power and couldn't handle it, then they oppress the poor, he says, is much like a driving rain which leaves no food. Again, the harsh driving rain, instead of helping the crops be fruitful, would severely damage the crops. And it would bring great ruin, something that could have been helpful because it's overbearing, it's a driving rain, and the overbearing influence causes it to actually bring severe ruin. He says, such as a person who obtains a place of leadership or power, forgets their past and their humble beginnings, and then starts abusing it in their role and causes great harm rather than good. Verse 4, those who forsake the law praise the wicked... And then the contrast, but such as keep the law, contend with them. So here the picture is how wicked people sadly encourage other wicked people by their example and by their words. He says there in verse 4, those who forsake the law praise the wicked. That is, they give commendation or, or encouragement to other wicked people. Again, uh, they, they tend to do this thing where because of their unhealthy condition, they end up just endorsing and enabling other wrong behavior. And this is such a sad and an unfortunate thing where you know the foolish give indication of their approval of other wrongdoing, and it just becomes this routine momentum where those who are wicked actually praise other wicked people as if it's right and should be endorsed and encouraged. But in contrast, he says, such as keep the law, those who want to obey, if you would, and observe God's word, God's law, he says, in contrast, they will contend with the wicked. So the one who wants to adhere to the word of God and uphold God's righteous and holy law, he says, they will stand against evil and resist evil activity. They'll actually contend against it. Wise people uphold standards of right and they hold lines, they don't concede to wrongdoing. People who want to do wicked things themselves, they're going to encourage wickedness because then it allows them to do more wickedness. But he says those who want to uphold the word of God and keep his word, they're going to stand and contend against evil and try and resist it from prospering around them. Verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. So again, evil men... He says they don't understand, and the one thing they don't understand is what's just, that is what's right, what's proper, and again, when someone is living in an evil way, what are they doing? They're walking in darkness, and if you're walking in darkness, you can't see clearly, so you can't make proper judgments, you can't determine things correctly. If someone is living in wickedness, the downside to that is is basically they're blinded because of the darkness that they're living in. So therefore, they don't have a proper reference point for what's proper. They're not going to be able to make good and just decisions because they're in blindness and darkness themselves. But the contrast to that, he says, is those who seek the Lord, 
That's the opposite of living in wickedness because to live in wickedness is to seek selfish, sinful indulgence. That's wrong. But those who seek the Lord, who himself is light, right? Those who seek the Lord, he says, in contrast, they understand not just justice, they understand all. That is because they see things clearly. Because they're walking in light, they're able to see through the light of the Lord and his understanding what is proper in all matters. What a glorious thing to have that exposure to be able to see things properly. Jesus said in John chapter 8, remember he said, I am the light of the world. And he said, and whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What a wonderful thing, the simplicity of that. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be talented. All I got to do is just be obedient. All I got to do is just follow Jesus. And if I follow Jesus, he's the light of the world. And his promise is, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness where you're tripping and falling and you make bad judgments and you can't see because you're in the dark and you're confused and you're just... Dis- He says, you won't walk in darkness, you'll have the light of life. So Jesus will illuminate our path, and we don't have to, oh, I don't know how to figure this out. I don't understand this. I don't know how to do that. That's okay. You just follow Jesus, and you'll begin to understand all because you'll receive supernatural understanding through the light of the word of God and the illumination of his Holy Spirit and his word being a lamp under your feet and a light to your path. What a glorious thing. Oh, I don't know what to do. Well, if you want to have more understanding, he says, just seek the Lord. Just keep seeking the Lord, and you'll understand all in the ways that you need to little by little. Verse 6, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. So here this speaks of how personal integrity is more valuable than having, God would say, excess money. To have personal integrity is more valuable than having excess money. To have more wealth, yet have to do wrong things to obtain that wealth, or to make concessions or compromise morally in order to get more wealth, God says that is a horrible trade-off. That's a bad deal, God says. If you've got to pervert your ways, or I've got to compromise in some way to obtain more wealth, to get more rich, to become perverse in my ways to do it, God says that that's a really bad investment because God says there is much more value, he says, to being poor but being honest and having integrity than there is to being someone who's rich but's perverse and a liar and cheats and cuts corners. God said it would be better to just have integrity and be an honest, poor person than to be a wealthy person who's doing crooked things and harming individuals. Verse 7, he says, And whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. So here he pictures two different ways the son can behave himself. He says the one way a son can behave themselves is they're keeping the law. That is, they, they honor the word of God, they live according to the standards of God's word, and therefore they become discerning individuals as they live according to the law of God, as they live according to the laws of the land because they respect authority, they obtain discernment. In contrast, he says, if a child becomes a companion of gluttons, and what are gluttons? Gluttons are people who are just very overly self-indulgent. It's all about them 
and the self-indulgence and the party life and having a great time, and, and, and that's the picture there, whether it's gluttonous you know, substance abuse or drinking alcohol or whatever you know, you're, you're exercising your gluttony in. He says that type of a lifestyle, if those are the companions a child chooses, hanging out with their own company, they're not just going to get themselves in trouble, but he says they're going to shame their father. Again, those who are doing such things will bring great embarrassment, the Bible says, not just upon themselves, but great shame and embarrassment in humiliating their father and shaming their parents. And look, I think this is a good reminder here in verse 7, really, of this reality that living wrong doesn't just impact us, it harms the other people that are connected to us, right? So he says, that child who keeps the word of God becomes a discerning son, and certainly that's going to make any parent proud. And in the same way, he said, that child that lives rebellious and wild or like the prodigal that goes out and just squanders and gluttony and self-indulgent and party living in sin and immorality, uh, just shame, brings just embarrassment and shame and heartbreak to the parent that's connected to them. And so again, what we do, both good or bad, it, it affects others connected to us. And, and wisely, we should remember that. You know, we, we, we always have that impact upon others as well. And I think verse 7 is a good reminder as you and I at times you know, are navigating parenting or talking to parenting to realize, look, this is how we should properly relate to our children. If we see them obeying the word of God, okay, you show me you're being discerning, I can entrust you. If you're going to live you know, crazy and out of control, uh, you're on a pathway to shame, then uh, don't ask me to entrust you with things. Uh, and, and so it just becomes a good reminder in many ways. Verse 8, one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion, so tr- you know, charging exorbitant interest rates, oppressing people, the picture here, manipulating people, taking advantage of them, gathers it for him who will pity the poor. So the, the picture here is those who would be selfishly getting wealthy off of the backs of others, we might say, taking advantage of individuals, charging them high interest rates, manipulating people, the poor and vulnerable conditions, taking advantage. He says, though this may be done, it never pays off in the end. It may be something where a person's able to get some success for a season, but it will always lead to problems and failures in the big picture because those who abuse their role and harm people and rip people off They just end up losing ultimately because what will happen, interesting, this proverb, it almost pictures here God kind of stealing from those who stole from others and giving it to those he'd rather have it instead. He says here, those who do these wrong things to increase their riches, hurting others and robbing them, he says, they're really just gathering it for him who will have pity on the poor, the exact opposite. Because God has no problem, if need be, taking back what crooks steal and rerouting his resources to where he would much rather them be utilized. Uh, And God has wonderful ways of doing that. You know, he has ways of rerouting his resources to wherever he wants them to be for his ultimate purposes. That's why we just do things the right way and trust God to take care of things. Verse 9, one who turns his ear away from hearing the law, now notice, they're turning their own ear away. The idea is they're, they're turning away to not listen. They're rejecting what's being said. Even his prayer is an abomination that is disgusting and a disgrace to God. Now, that's some pretty strong language, but what the proverb is telling us is wisdom recognizes that to disregard God's voice, to refuse what God is saying, 
is to, in a sense, also close off God's ear in listening to our request. That if God is speaking, whether through his word or by his spirit, and God is clearly speaking to us, and we are turning away our ear and saying, no thanks, Lord, I really don't want to hear that because I'd rather hear this. Or I really don't want to do that because I'd rather do this. And we disregard God's voice. We turn our ear away from what God is clearly speaking He says, if a person is consciously rejecting what God is saying, behaving in self-will and rebellion, then he says, here's the bad trade-off. God's not going to honor their ask of him. Even their prayer will become an abomination because why is God going to honor my ask if I don't want to do what God wants me to do? If I don't want to listen to God and I don't want to obey God, then why, if God loves me, is God going to do things to to, to answer my prayers and my requests? Really, that's kind of just counterproductive. That would be harmful for me. Again, the Bible reiterates this principle in multiple different places. For example, Psalm uh, 66, when we went through the Psalms together, we saw a very similar principle. Let me read you Psalm 66, verse uh, 18, says it this way, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not here. That word regard literally is a term that means to cherish, to esteem. So the idea there is not if I fail, not if I make mistakes. Look, we're always failing. We always stumble. We always make mistakes. He's not saying you have to be sinlessly perfect or God won't listen to your prayers. (laughs) No, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that we can come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace through Jesus to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need because we come through Jesus. That's our acceptance. What God's word does say is when we start trying to abuse the grace of God by consciously, willfully cherishing and regarding some sinful thing, rebelling in some way, living in conscious, continual defiant sin, and we're not repenting, we won't turn of it, we won't let go of it, we know it's in contradiction to the word of God, or we know God's spirit has told us to do something, but we're just continuing to turn our ear away and and to kind of just ignore it. He says that in that situation, then the Lord will choose to basically turn his ear away from responding to your requests. In a sense, we can ask, but God says, uh, until we see some change, I'm not giving you your ask. And, what, and, and whatever it takes, and if my silence to you is what gets your attention, then sometimes that's necessary. I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he cautions us as husbands regarding how we treat our wives as the weaker vessel, cherishing them, dwelling with them according to knowledge, really giving good, proper attention, knowing the condition of our wife, attending to her needs. And he says to the husbands, lest your prayers be hindered. That's powerful. God says, if you don't treat my daughter right, then I may choose not to listen to you <laughs> if you're not listening to her and caring about her. And again, so, so God cautions us that if our heart is being rebellious and we're knowingly disobeying what God's word says, then we are really foolishly thinking that somehow our relationship with God and our prayer life can be healthy because God can opt to basically just in a sense, it's not that he doesn't hear our prayer, He just chooses not to respond to it to get our attention in some ways, to get us to recognize things aren't right between him. And and look, very important because sometimes I know you've never said this, and I know I would never say this, but we've all heard people say when living in blatant disobedience to God, 
or clear violation of the word of God. Oh, but, but, but I'm right with God. I, I pray every day. I pray every day. Well, you may pray every day, but it doesn't mean God's responding to your prayers if you're living in disregard to God because God loves you too much to give you something to self-destruct. So again, very important, just a a wise principle to recognize here he speaks about in regards to relationship with God and the, the wisdom of understanding it properly. He says, verse 10, where or whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, so now it's talking of leading others in a wrong direction, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. So here the picture is that it is a very serious matter to misguide innocent and righteous people and cause them to err in harmful ways. The one who leads astray, he says, the upright, the righteous, and leads them astray in an evil way, God says, that person will fall ultimately into their own pit. The idea is they will suffer great consequence for doing that. Again, God does not take lightly misguiding people and leading people astray. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 18, Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who offends one of these little ones, stumbles one of these little ones, referring to children, vulnerable, innocent naive children, he says, it would be, he said, better. It'd be the better option if a a heavy millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Again, God does not take lightly doing this. In a sense, kidnapping people's conscience and their emotions and, and misguiding and leading people who would seek to do what is upright and leading them to go astray in an evil way. Listen, I tell you folks, this is, to me, I read that and very instantly, right away, I see all of this horrible stuff being done in our culture today. To me, it, it is a form of child abuse. These puberty blockers and these gender reassignment surgeries, it is a money-making, sick, disgusting, filthy form of child abuse. That's exactly what this is. Preying upon the confusion of children and causing them to be led in directions. Listen, why is it that you got to be 17 years old before you even get a driver's license? You gotta be 21 years old before you can have a sip of alcohol legally, or 18 years old before you can vote for somebody who would be a politician. But yet we're telling people as as minors, as teenagers, and sometimes nine and ten, and you can make life-altering decisions to cut parts of your body off or to take chemicals to basically alter your natural development. I mean, this is insanity. It is absolute insanity. It's disgusting. And I shudder for those who are doing this thinking there's going to be no consequence. I mean, the lunacy of it. I mean, I didn't raise boys, but if I was, you know, if one of my grandchildren is playing with me when they get a little bit older and they think they're, they're a, pilot, a pirate for the day, oh, I'm Captain Hook. Well, come here. We ought to take your mom and dad and we ought to go get your eye plucked out and put an eye patch on you the rest of your life. No, they're a child. You don't make life-altering decisions and let a child make that. That's what parents are for. I mean, and this is just absolute, the lunacy of this and the fact that people even give attention to this is disgusting. 
And it is nothing other than a money-making, filthy, grooming agenda. And he says, look, those who do this are leading people astray in an evil way, and they're going to fall into their own. I, I can't even imagine really what pit it is such people are going to fall into, but he says the blameless, that is those who stay the right course, do things the right way, will inherit good. Again, and that's what we need to do. We need to be those who are willing to just in wisdom say, you know what, no, I'm going to continue to do what's right and blameless because I know what is the proper and the righteous and the moral thing, and I'm just going to wait for God, and I'm going to inherit the good things that God will bring into my life as I just keep doing that which is good. I mean, again, that's the idea. We just keep doing what's right. And it don't matter. Let people blame us. Oh, you people are archaic. You're Victorian. You're not tolerant. You're not. Blame me for whatever you want. I'd rather be blamed by you and stand blameless before God. <laughs> and I'll trust the good repercussions. What a soapbox. Let's pray.